of Tennessee, and we need people not only just to vote, but people to show up and speak out so that we can end the gun violence epidemic that's happening in our state. This is wrong, this is unjust, and this is not the way that it has to be. There is a better way for us to live, and we don't have to live this way. But the Republican Party of the state of Tennessee want to keep things the same. If you want to fight to change it, if you want to help to make this place a better place, you have to use your voice, you have to use your power, and yes, sometimes you've got to get expensive. And happy Saturday, and welcome to DL. I'm your host, Ed Clark. It is Saturday, April 8th, 2023. And I know it's April 8th, Val, because April 7th was yesterday, and that was my birthday. <laughs> uh, so I am getting closer and closer to uh, you in age. <laughs> but you keep, mo- yes, you keep moving the, you keep moving the bar. <laughs> I keep moving the goalposts. Well, Val, welcome back to the deal. <laughs> Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Ed. Thank you. Good to be back. Well, I'm glad you're back. Uh, uh, last week, uh, we had Sherelle James in here, and she did a, a bang-up job in your place. Uh, and uh, But we got so much to talk about this week, Val. It's it's crazy. It's like sometimes I, I think we're in a time war. <clears throat> you know, being born in 1965, uh, it was a... Um, interesting year uh, a, a number of uh, assassinations were going on malcolm x was assassinated uh, uh we were still a few years from martin luther king and fred hampton being assassinated and i do say assassinated in the case of uh, fred hampton uh because uh, that was a political assassination from the fbi and the chicago police and and we could we could talk a lot about all this stuff but uh the reason why i bring that up val is i wrote a piece uh for the deal with edclark.com about what's going on in Tennessee and and how it's not very different than what we would have expected in 1965, the year that I was born. Now, if you look at me, uh, you, you probably say to yourself, he can't be that old. He's so good looking. Right. But, but the fact is, is that, that I I am in my late fifties approaching 60 very quickly, Val. And uh, things have not changed very much. Have they? Uh, 1965 uh, seems like a long time away, but when I wake up in the morning, all those uh, 21,000 or so days that I've been alive don't feel like that long. And and, uh, and and we've seen what's been happening in Tennessee, and I know you got a lot to say about it. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, Ed, uh, I was listening to uh, Barry... Uh, Black, who is a retired airman from the U.S. Navy. He's also the chaplain for the United States Senate. And I I listened to him say something that perked my ears up when he said he went rogue. And I said, a chaplain going rogue? What does this mean? And he was talking about a shooting, another mass shooting. And he said a part of his prayer included a statement that says, God, I went rogue, and we need more than thoughts and prayers at this time. And I said, what a statement coming from a man of the cloth. And I thought about that, and I thought about it in in political terms. And I said, well, you know, let me put something on paper. And I, I thought of the title first, and it came to me, it says, more than thoughts and prayers, and more than just votes. Because what we tell each other all the time is 
we got to go out and vote. Look what they're doing over here in Mississippi. Look what they're doing in North Carolina. And look what they're doing in Tennessee. We got to go out and vote. And that's what it reminded me of. And I put pen to paper for a couple of sentences that I'd like to go forward. And it says, extreme gerrymandering has made it so that we now need more than voter turnout. While we were asleep, they passed Citizens United, which allowed them to acquire unlimited dark money to run campaigns at all levels. They refused to allow President Obama to fill a Supreme Court vacancy, which contributed to the current lopsided 63 Republican majority court. Shelby V. Holder was decided by the high court, which gutted the 1965 Voting Rights Act by holding that section four of the act was unconstitutional. Then they used that decision to gerrymander districts at the state level to gain control of state legislatures after which they passed draconian voter suppression laws to tighten their controlling grip on legislatures while they further gerrymandered congressional districts. And now they control the U.S. House of Representatives. And still yet to come is the court's ruling on Moore v. Harper, which could make state legislatures, as the title of Godfrey Hodgson's book says, more equal than others. The Moore v. Harper case if ruled in Moore's favor, would not allow state Supreme Courts to declare that maps drawn by the legislature were unconstitutional, excusing state legislatures from checks and balances and clearly making them more equal than others. All this was done while we were not woke. So unless we are, unless we do something about the highest court in the land, gerrymandering, Section 4 of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and Citizens United, voting alone will fail, will fall, I'm sorry, into the category of thoughts and prayers. And that's well, my piece. Well, that's that's a mouthful, but, but, it, but it's so germane to what was happening in Tennessee and also in North Carolina and Mississippi and a lot of other places. Uh, uh, if you if you're just tuning in, this is Val Atkinson. He's uh, our resident political uh, a analyst, and um, and and we're trying to make some sense of what's going on in the United States because uh, clearly, Val, uh, you you hit the the nail right on the head talking about this gerrymandering and how they've been able to gain control of these state legislatures, and in the case of Tennessee which I want to delve into a little bit more here. Uh, it's it's a 75-25 split. Now, we know Nashville and Memphis has uh, large populations. They're large urban centers, and uh, most of the population live in those two places. There are approximately 7 million people who live in the state of Tennessee, uh, while there's 11 million over here in North Carolina where we are or so. Uh, but 17% uh, of the population in Tennessee is classified as Black, African-American. Uh, and you mean to tell me, Val, <laughs> that you can come up with any way in the world that 75% of the 
of the legislature is Republican. And not only Republican, but very white, right-wing Republican at that. Now, I know people in Tennessee might be conservative, but 75 to 25, can you explain that to me? And, and taking into context what you just read there, your piece there, how in the world do you get to a 75-25 in Tennessee? The only way you do it, Ed, is through gerrymandering. And that's the, the, the principal point of my piece was that unless you change that, then voter turnout really is something that needs a lot of help. So you can't get from 17% to make it to be uh, uh, three quarters to, uh, to one quarter. I, I don't know how you do that. To answer your question, the math doesn't work out. Yeah, It's just like it is in North Carolina. Same yeah, thing. 30% uh, Republican, 33% Democrat, uh, the rest independent. And we came up with a 80% congressional delegation. That is ridiculous to the core. Mm -hmm. You know, I looked at the numbers also uh, in Tennessee, Val, of registered voters. And, of course, Democrats make up a large percentage of those registered voters. Uh, and, and so do independents. But again, it's just like North Carolina or in a lot of other southern states where uh, Republicans have managed to take control of the legislature. And you get things like what happened to the representatives, uh, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, and then Gloria Johnson. They faced expulsion and two got expelled. Uh, now, uh, again, in my piece, I point out that it was 157 years and the state of Tennessee had only expelled two people, one for sexual assault <laughs> and one for serious bribery uh, allegations that they got convicted of. And now uh, let's talk about decorum for a second, Val. Uh, the reason why they say that uh, the two Justins, Jones and, P and Pearson, were expelled is because they lacked decorum. They went to the well of the house and they spoke using a, a bullhorn in the midst of what was happening. The backdrop here is that there's another mass shooting. And this time it was in their own backyard. And every time they got up to speak in committee or on the floor, their mics were cut off. So they took a drastic step of going down to the well to make this presentation and two of the three get expelled and guess who gets expelled the two colored ones and even the white uh person who did not get expelled said that it was more than likely because they were black and if you talk to some of the folks on the republican side they keep talking about this whole thing of decorum but val i heard that there have actually been legislature legislators who peed in other <laughs> representative seats in the Tennessee legislature, not got kicked out, have had fights in the legislature and not been kicked out, have have actually faced sex uh, sex crimes charges and not gotten kicked out. Uh, how how does this impact how people view the legislature in Tennessee going forward? Will it have any kind of effect? Do you think on upcoming elections, on anything else, or is a 75-25 majority so uh, entrenched that it won't matter what they do? They can double down and do something else. What do you expect from the legislature, Tennessee? 
what I expect from this Ed, I th is, is going to be an outcome that is not good for Republicans uh, and the current legislature as it, as it is configured right now. I think they sort of overreached because what they must be uh, not aware of is that in order to win these gerrymandered districts that they have, they still need a modicum of independent vote. They don't need black vote. They, they get their pencil or the pen and draw them out of the equation. But they still need a modicum of independent vote and they think they can get this. These are the kinds of things that happen in, in, in Tennessee that make some independents say, I can't, that's a bridge too far. I can't do that. And you're going to find that they're going to lose some seats in the House come 24 that they thought were safe, were good, and gave them that 75% margin. They're going to lose because of this. And one other thing, Ed, you mentioned the shooting, that people wanted to talk about the shooting. The, the faces I remember of all of these white teenagers that came to the well, that came to the assembly to voice their opinion and the leadership in the General Assembly didn't even mention them. They wanted to talk about, uh, they didn't mention why they were there. They want to talk about the horrible actions of Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, and Gloria Johnson. They didn't even mention it at all. And that goes to show us why they talk about decorum and process and all of those things. They are using decorum and process to do what they want to do. That is have minority rule. And by this, I mean uh, white people, uh, Republicans, that's all over the United States. In cases where they happen to be the minority, they want to rule. And I know later on we're going to talk about what's going on in Mississippi and places like Jackson, Mississippi, where white people are the minority in that city. They had to figure out a way how they can still rule that from the minority. So when I say minority rule, that's what I'm talking about. But I think the legislature in Tennessee is going to find that this is going to backfire on them. And the last piece that's going to hurt uh, for a continuing period of time is going to be when those young white folks become a voting age, which most of them may be already, they're going to vote not just in 24, but for years to come, they're going to remember this. And, 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 and then they're going to talk to people who's coming up behind them, who may be uh, 16, maybe even 15 years old right now, that will be ready to vote in uh, two to three years. They're going to talk to them. These people that are 15 and 16 right now are going to be looking up to these people that were on the floor of the Tennessee General Assembly. And their voices weren't heard when they talked about afraid of being going to school, afraid of being shot. Can't understand why somebody should qualify or even want an AR-15. And that's gonna bite the legislatures in Tennessee in the rear end. And I personally don't even think they realize it's coming. Yeah, I don't think they realize it's coming either, Val. And I, I think that's also a good place for us to take a break. 
when I when we come back, what I want to talk about is what's going on here in North Carolina, and then we'll we'll get to Mississippi as well. In North Carolina, there was a big change. Uh, now the Republicans have a supermajority, and they can override the governor's veto. And I know you know a lot about North Carolina legislative politics and how that works. So I want to talk about that because there, there there's some big implications if we start going down the same road in North Carolina with abortion legislation and all that other stuff like some of those other states. So stay right there. We'll be right back after this mess. Need, need commercials? We got, got, got you. Here's another one. Hey there, it's Jasmine from the D.L. Hughley Show. If you need commercials for your business or events, call the Vic Agency at 704-441-2708. That's 704-441-2708. Or email thevicagency at hotmail.com. Sometimes you have to do something out of the ordinary. Sometimes you have to make a way out of no way. We have been too quiet for too long. There comes a time when you have to say something, when you have to make a little noise. When you have to move your feet. This is the time. Now is the time to get in the way. The time to act is now. We will be silent. No more. The time for silence is over. I've seen that so many times, and it's amazing every single time. That was seven years ago. Basil mentioned that moment when Congressman John Lewis, a civil rights icon who was just 23 years old when he spoke at the March on Washington, let us sit in on the House floor over Republicans' refusal to hold a vote on, wait for it, gun safety legislation following the mass shooting, the massacre at Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. And so when she expressed an interest in, in talking with us, of course, I said yes. And we are honored today to have with us our newest member of the Republican caucus, uh, Representative Tricia Cotham. Tricia. I am a single mom of two amazing sons, a teacher, a small business owner, a woman with strong faith, a national championship basketball coach, and a public servant. Today, I add Republican to that list. And welcome back to our second segment of The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. It is uh, Saturday, April 8th, 2023. We're so happy you decided to spend some time with us. Uh, I do want to give a programming note. Um, uh, we have been uh, also, uh, you know, uh, anticipating doing some uh, uh, specials and I'm working on some guests. You know, Val, a lot of times when we, we, we go out and get guests who are experts in some of these areas that we talk about. So, uh, just be looking at the website in the coming weeks for some of the guests because I, I do want to talk about uh, this whole thing with the, the Trump indictment. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it today, but I do want some lawyers in here so we can 
deconstruct what's happening with that because a lot of people keep talking about what's the strength of the case that Alvin Bragg has, Val. It, but I want to hear from some lawyers um, that that can tell us about that. So be looking for that. In the meantime, it, you saw coming back in from the break, Val. Uh, there's this uh, lady named Trisha Cotham. She she represents a district near Charlotte, here in North Carolina where we are, and she flipped to the Republicans. Now flipping to the Republicans wouldn't be bad, uh, all by itself. Uh, it had had it not been added to the fact that it gave the Republicans a super majority, and now they can overrule a veto by the governor. And in North Carolina has a fairly weak governor, not in terms of the person himself, but in in terms of how much power they have to wield executive orders and those kind of things. Val, what's up with this Trisha Cotham? Uh, how did the Republicans convince her to flip? And was it false advertisement when she ran for the seat in the first place uh, to win in a district that was a Democratic district and then flip over to the Republicans? What's her deal? Well, it shows uh, how little uh, some uh, Democratic Party strategizers pay to some of these races. You know, and, and I go back to our congressman who is the liar in chief on his resume in the Congress right now. Don't even like to use his name, but he got through a, a primary and a general election without anybody knowing that everything on his uh, uh, resume was a lie. The same thing happens here with Cotham in terms of Democrats said, and I guess Republicans are guilty uh, of it from time to time too. If we look, if it looks like we're going to win the seat, we're not going to bother with it. Okay, just let it go. We we're going to win that seat. That's one more notch in our gun, right? That we have uh, to keep these people from having a super majority. And she could have been as right wing as night, and uh, they didn't care. They think she's going to adhere to the Democratic uh, posture and policy. And she didn't do that. They offered, they meaning the Republicans, offered her a committee chairmanship, which she's going to have now, okay? Uh, they offered her security, that they will give her campaign funding if she wants to run as a Republican, uh, run for a Republican re-election the next time in 24. So they're going to do all of that stuff, and she probably saw herself having more security with the Republican, getting off of that back bench, getting a committee she wants and being the chair of that committee and being in high cotton as it were, you know? So that's why she made the move. Ideologically, it's probably where she's most comfortable anyway. So we lost that. But if the constituents in that district were successful and had the power to put in a Democrat, they can do it in 24. And they have more motivation now to do it. I'd love to see her run as a Republican for that same district in 24. I think it's almost an absolute loss for her. I think you hit the nail on the head again that she's not, she's not 
uh, going to probably run in that same district. What I suspect is that they'll try to help her move around to somewhere else. You know, which brings up here. Here's the here's the problem here, Val. Uh, there are court cases uh, about North Carolina uh, redistricting that continue to go through the state supreme court, the at, at the federal district courts, and the supreme court at the national level. North Carolina seems to always be stuck right in the center of these things, and it's clear to me that they're going to push this whole idea that these state legislatures, once they set these districts, nobody can do anything about it. That's the only way they can hold on to power. Can you talk to me and tell the folks who are listening, because we've picked up a lot of new listeners and viewers over the last few months that might not know how, how North Carolina politics sort of is at the front and center of a lot of this either uh, election rules that are being discussed in the courts but also in this redistricting that's being discussed in the courts. The biggest uh, case out there right now that's forthcoming, Ed, is the Moore v. Harper case. And the essence of that particular case, Moore, the Speaker of the House, uh, is alleging that he should have the power to make uh, unfettered decisions about what districts ought to look like at the state level and at the congressional level without being uh, reversed by the state Supreme Court of North Carolina. That's the essence of the case. And the Supreme Court can't make a ruling for North Carolina and say it doesn't apply to the other 49 states. That would violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. You can't do that. So it would be a situation if they rule in favor of more we're all over the country from this point forward. Uh, the state legislatures are more equal than others, as I would like to say, especially more equal than the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court could not come in and say these lines were drawn unconstitutionally. They do not meet muster for checks and balances. You know, it's done. And already the governor doesn't have veto power in most areas. And even if he did in this particular legislature in North Carolina right now, they have a super majority. What that means, we've been throwing that word around. It means they have the numbers to override a governor's veto if it was a straight party line vote. So it doesn't matter if the governor decides to veto something or not. And if more v. Harper passes that way, the Supreme Court, even if it were in Democratic hands, couldn't come back and say, we overrule you. We got to draw the lines again. It's not. So it gets down to a point where the legislature becomes king, becomes God. The other two branches are insignificant. They have nothing to say about what the legislature does. Now, if some kind of way, by miracle, Democrats take back over the legislature in the next few uh, uh, sessions of the General Assembly, four, six, eight years from now, watch the Republicans try to undo what they have going for them right now. They'll tell you that the legislature is too powerful, we have no checks and balances, and the Supreme Court should be allowed to go in and say that what the 
legislature doing is unconstitutional. This is a power grab. I, I'm willing to uh, uh, put money on that, Val. So if you want to, <laughs> if you want to make that a wager in Vegas, I will bet money on it that the Republicans would flip in a heartbeat and and, and reverse course. I want to remind you, <laughs> you're watching the deal with Ed Clark and Val Atkinson. If you're listening to podcasts on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcasts, we appreciate it. We'd like for you to pass that information along and get other people to tune in. And even if you don't agree, here's the thing, Val, that's different about what we do here. If you don't agree, we actually want you to hear it. Well, we, we don't want to be in a vacuum like over at Fox News or at Newsmax or whatever. And, and the other thing is, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I believe that uh, when we were talking about the story about Tennessee, the reason why they expelled those two legislators were because they were young black people and they were vocal. It, that, that's what it was about. And if you ask uh, anybody on the Republican side in Tennessee, they're not going to want to talk about that. They won't talk about the fact that they cut off their microphones. They won't talk about the fact that they were mainly white kids who were there protesting, like you brought up before. They won't talk about that. And like in North Carolina with Trisha Cotham, they won't tell you that the whole deal here is that they think they have somebody who will help them pass some of those draconian abortion laws because North Carolina had become a safe haven for women in South Carolina and Tennessee and Kentucky mm -hmm. because it's a, it's a short drive from there to come to North Carolina and you could still get abortion services. But they won't tell you that people who get abortions get them for all kinds of reasons and mostly medical reasons. There are some people who decide they don't want to have a child, but that had been the law of the land. It's not anymore. The reason why Cotham switched is because they want to start passing those same laws in North Carolina. Let's not be mistaken about what this is about. Hey, Val, before we run out of time in this segment, let's talk about another former Confederate state, <laughs> the state of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. The state of Mississippi and and, and Governor uh, Tate Reeves down there who declared uh, Confederate History Heritage Month now, now, how how far of a throwback is that? That you you're in 2023 when people have taken down statues and all that, and you you're declaring Confederate Heritage Month, and then on top of that, you got a city Jackson, Mississippi, who clearly has a problem with water, and and could have been fixed because they've gotten a lot of money over the years, but this the state of Mississippi has used that money to hey build a volleyball court. <laughs> for Brett Favre's daughter and stuff like that. Tell me about what's going on in Mississippi. Uh, since we're on the South, we might as well stay stay talking about these states. What's going on with uh, Governor Tate Reeves? Well, well, let, let, let me start off in Mississippi by talking about Mississippi was the last state, Ed, to ratify the uh, 13th Amendment. And, you, you know, the, the state that ratified the 13th Amendment in De on December the 6th of 1865 to be the last state to give it the appropriate number of states was Georgia. That was on December the 6th of 1865. And, and a lot of other states came on board after that, but Georgia was the one that gave it enough numbers to make it happen. 
you would think that the rest of them that came on board happened in 1880. Some of them as late as 1910 or 1925 or whatever. Mississippi came on board in 2003. 2003 was when they signed to say that, okay, we, we believe that it's okay not to have slavery in the United States of America. Okay, that's the first thing you want to know about Mississippi. Uh, and the second thing is that Mississippi has always been about trying to get block grants. Block grants is something that the Deep South used to really override what the Congress of the United States wanted to do with money. The Congress of the United States says that, okay, we're going to give you $100 million for this, $600 million for that, and $5 billion to do X. And uh, in this case that we're talking about, certain monies were set aside, identified, and allocated for the water situation in Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi in particular. So Congress set aside certain amounts of money. What Mississippi did was to treat it as a block grant, meaning that once you get all of the money there for everything, then you can redistribute it as you decide. And if you want to build a volleyball court with money that was set aside for SNAP or TANF or, or whatever, help yourself with it. If it was to clean up water to make it safer to drink, but you think a volleyball court would be better for students than babies having clean water, go after it, go do it. This is who we are dealing with in the year of 2023, Ed. And I wish, I hope, I wish nobody was just listening and not watching when I was talking about the year 2003 and, and they saw the look on your face at that time because you were really outraged about that as many people are. Listen, we may be a long way from 1865, but in some ways, Ed, it's still, the door is still open and the remnants of the horrible things that happened in, in uh, the antebellum days in this country, starting in 1619, are still with us. They still hurt. And this just raises his head, the Tennessee piece, the Mississippi piece, the North Carolina piece. It just raises his head from time to time to remind us that you may change some things on paper, but in the hearts and minds of some white folks, you are still in 1619. Yeah. And, and that's the way it is. And you might as well admit that. And then... Once you admit that, then you can start developing a plan to do something about it. Yeah, clearly, Val, they want us to be in our place, right? Yes. I mean, the other thing about Mississippi that I do remember, Val, is uh, 2020, uh, when they finally took the Confederate battle flag off of their flag. and mm -hmm. so, so we're only talking about three years ago or so when they did that. Uh, now, uh, I'm not going to argue with anybody about whether or not Confederate heritage is important. I'm going to tell you, it's not. <laughs> uh, these folks rebelled against the United States of America. They should have faced treason charges. A lot of them got off scot-free. Some of them went to Brazil and 
and started their nonsense down there or Argentina and different places. They went to other places or they went to Utah. Uh, there's a place called Dixie, Utah, mm. where, where a bunch of folks went because they, they wanted to uh, thought that they were going to be able to maintain, you know, their way of life and slavery and all those kind of things in, in Utah. Uh, the, the fact here is that we are in a situation where we have, uh, an opportunity to move ourselves, advance ourselves. Technology is tremendous. Uh, there's so many things that are better about living in 2023 than in uh, 1923. But there are folks who want to continually, continuously drag us back. You know what? That's a good place for us to take a break. We'll take a break and when we come back, I'm going to talk about uh, Val Atkinson's favorite justice on the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas. <laughs> he may be in a he may be in a little bit of hot water, and then we'll end up talking about this judge in Texas who thinks he can make abortion laws. So stay right there. We'll be right back after this. The next disaster is coming. The time to get ready is now. Make a plan. Identify meetup locations and people you'll need to contact. Put your contact list in your wallet, on your phone, and somewhere visible in your home. Build a kit. Store enough food and water for three days. Don't forget your pets. And consider buying a pre-made kit. Keep at least seven days of medication on hand. Work with your pharmacist and insurance company to secure the extra doses. Make copies of important documents. Keep them on your phone, in the cloud, or on a USB stick. Stay informed. Learn about local hazards. Take courses in CPR and first aid. And sign up for local alert systems. An early warning can give you the time you need to prepare for a fast-moving disaster. Be ready. Learn more at americares.org slash send us in.
Just in Supreme Court, um, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has now issued a statement. The first comment from Thomas or the Supreme Court after the report by ProPublica laying out how Justice Thomas and his wife went on many trips over the years, paid for by his friend and big Republican donor Harlan Crohn, and importantly, did not disclose that in any disclosures. Ariane DeVogue is back with us with more on this statement. Ariane, what is the justice saying now? Right, you're absolutely right. The first time we hear from him after the release of that bombshell report that really detailed over the years that he took these trips to places like New Zealand, Indonesia, on private uh, yachts, private jets, never disclosed it, and it was all paid for by this mega Republican uh, donor named Harlan Crow. I'm going to read you the statement, and it's kind of long, but keep in mind, we do not usually hear a statement like this uh, from Clarence Thomas. He said, Harlan and Kathy Crow are among our dearest friends, and we have been friends for over 25 years. As friends do, we have joined them on a number of family trips during the more than a quarter century we have known them. Early in my tenure at the court, I sought guidance from my colleagues and others in the judiciary and was advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable.